If you would, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. For Reformation Sunday, we're taking a one-week break from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll return next week to the Olivet Discourse, which I'm looking forward to. But for today, Galatians 3, just five verses, verses 1 to 5. You'll notice that there's a lot of Reformation themes in here, but then there's also one Halloween uh, metaphor as well. We got them all in five verses. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. To set the tone for this passage, I want you to imagine for a moment a scene from a crime movie. You've seen it a number of times. A man captured by the bad guys, his arms tied behind his back, maybe with zip ties, and then they throw a bag over his head put him in the back of their white panel van and haul him off to their secret hideout. Maybe so that he can be offered for ransom money. But regardless, the man has a bag over his head. Why do they do this? I mean, it happens all the time. Why do they do it? Quite simply, so he can't see. This is a really old trick. It's actually where we get the term hoodwinked. Today, when we talk about winking, what do we think? We think of blinking one of our eyes really briefly. But the word wink didn't originally mean that. Originally, to wink meant to close both of your eyes tightly so that you couldn't see. Well, it used to be that highway robbers, before they would rob somebody, they would put a bag over their head, a hood over their head, so that the person's eyes could not see, as if they would be closed tightly. So putting the hood over their head came to be known as hoodwinked. Why would they hoodwink somebody? So that they could rob them blind. That's what had happened to the Galatians. They had a bag over their head. They were hoodwinked, bamboozled, or to use the language of verse 1 in this text, they were foolish Galatians who had been bewitched. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed is crucified. The word bewitched, this is important, literally means 
to exercise an evil influence over the eyes. So, when Paul had planted the churches in Galatia, he preached the gospel so clearly, and the Galatians received it through the Holy Spirit in such a way that it was as if they had seen Christ publicly portrayed before their very eyes. And they understood the significance of what that meant. If the Son of God had to die on a cross for our sins, it must mean that the only way that we can have right standing before God, the only way that we can be justified before God is through grace alone not through works, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But after Paul had left Galatia, a group of people had crept into the Galatian churches and cast a spell on them. It put a bag over their heads. They taught that if a person wanted to have a right standing with God and a right standing in the family of God, they needed more than simply faith in Christ. They also needed to be circumcised. It's what Paul refers to as works of the law. This false teaching was like a spell. As Martin Luther says, it was a demonic delusion. It had blinded them to the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The false teachers had hoodwinked them. Why? To rob them of the truth. The same thing happened in the 16th century. The Roman Catholic Church hoodwinked so many and taught that a right standing with God and a right standing in the church involved more than faith in Christ. It also involved certain works. The sacraments, baptism, even buying indulgences so that you or your loved ones could get out of purgatory. It was a dark time in the church. But thankfully, that's what we're celebrating today, The Reformation helped turn the lights back on in the church. The Reformation recovered the gospel. That's what we're celebrating today. The recovery of salvation through grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. All to the glory of God alone because it's not anything that we do, but what God Himself has done. These truths are central to our beliefs as evangelicals. But this is where I want to push a little bit. Even though we believe that these things are true and central, sometimes we live as though we don't. Sometimes we live like we've got a bag over our head. Like we've been hoodwinked, bewitched. You know what Paul calls this? Foolishness. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is strong language. Throughout the letter 
of Galatians, Paul is constantly referring to the Galatians as brothers and sisters. He's using family language. But here, he addresses them as fools. A fool is someone who knows what's true, but lives as though they don't know what is true. Someone who believes one thing, but lives another thing. I know that I often act like a bewitched fool. You know where it happens? It happens in the movement from this podium down those stairs from Sunday in to Monday. I sometimes live out of sync with what I preach. It's like I'm wearing a different set of clothes sometimes. Today is Halloween, a day when some of you will put on costumes and go through your neighborhood trick-or-treating. I don't do that kind of thing. No costumes for me. But sometimes, when I run into some of you, I'm looking at one of you right now, around town, maybe I see you in the grocery store, maybe I see you um, somewhere else, you think I have a costume on. Because you look at me in shorts and t-shirt, and you don't recognize me as your pastor. You have to take a a double take. That happens all the time to me, because I don't have a coat on. Um, at Dylan's, That is to be expected that I wouldn't wear the same clothes on Monday as I do on Sunday. But is it to be expected that I would live according to different truths on Monday than I preach on Sunday? I don't wear a bag over my head in this pulpit. I'm preaching with my eyes wide open. The gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm calling you to believe that same thing. But sometimes, the second I step off of those stairs, I put the bag right back on my head. What am I talking about? Start living like my standing before God and in the family of God is based on what I do, not on what God has done in Christ. Was my sermon good enough? Is my life together enough? Are my children doing well enough? And if not, then am I good enough? This is foolish. My standing before God, your standing before God, your standing in the family of God is not based on anything that you have done. It is based squarely on what God has done in Jesus Christ. So what about you? Are you living like a fool? Believing the doctrine of the Reformation? The Gospel? but then living by the doctrine of works. When we live like our welcome into the family of God and our standing in the family of God is based on what we do, we are fools. 
When we speak like the only way we can earn God's favor is through our works, we have become bewitched. But Paul doesn't want to leave us bewitched. What he does in the next four verses is dewitch us. And how does he go about this dewitching process? He asks a series of questions. He already has asked one, who has bewitched you? But he has four more. And they're all designed to lead his readers to see the foolishness of living by works of the law, even though they know the grace of the gospel in their head. These four questions, for our purposes, I'm going to reduce into two sections. And the reason for that, as I think you'll see, is the second question and the fifth question, verses 2 and 5. They're parallel to one another. And then the middle questions in verses 3 and 4 are also parallel to one another. So let's look at the first and last question again. Look at verse 2. Paul says, let me ask you only this. So this is his main question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In verse 5, he asks a very similar question. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles or literally works of power among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer to Paul's questions would have been obvious for the Galatians. Did they receive the Spirit by works of the law or through hearing and believing the Gospel? Obviously, When they received the Spirit, it was at the same time when they heard the Gospel preached to them and believed that Gospel. It wasn't based off of anything that they did. It was all God's work. And so here's the point for us today. You get into the family of God through hearing and believing the Gospel. You get into the family of God by hearing and believing the gospel. The false teachers in Galatia were telling them that if they wanted to have solid standing before God and in the church, they needed to do works of the law. This tag, works of the law, I think is mainly, specifically speaking about being circumcised. But that's not the gospel. That's a bewitching spell. The Galatians would not become justified by circumcision. Look back up at chapter 2, verse 16. This is the thesis of the whole book. They were justified, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And the main evidence of their justification was the fact that they had received the Holy Spirit. They had been born again when they heard and believed the gospel not through circumcision. This was a work of the Spirit, and it was a miracle, or literally a work of power in them. What could they possibly do more to prove that they had right standing before God? God had worked in their heart by the Holy Spirit. How did He do that? By convicting them of sin by convincing them 
that Jesus was the one who saved them from their sin. The Spirit made them alive together with Christ, forgiving their sin. And the Spirit was now working in their hearts, transforming them from the inside out. This was a work of power in their lives. And the same is true for us. Salvation is not based off of anything we do. It is through faith in what God has done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now that is not to say, and Paul is not saying, that our works don't matter. He goes on in this letter, which was the basis of my prayer earlier, to say that the Spirit will produce works in us. Things like purity and unity and love, joy, peace, patience, all of those types of things. It will produce good works. He's not saying that works don't matter. What is he saying then? He is saying that our works are not what secures our standing before God. And he's specifically talking about circumcision, saying we don't need some external sign that says that we are saved apart from the sign that the Spirit gives us new life and enables us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've wrestled with how to faithfully apply this lesson to us today. Because I think it's pretty obvious that none of you here today are wrestling with assurance of salvation because you're not following the Mosaic Law. Or you're not thinking, oh, I've not been circumcised. I might not have right standing before God. I don't think anybody's thinking that. I don't think any of you are tempted um, to go and buy an indulgence so that you can get out of purgatory quicker. Anybody struggling with that here today? I mean, we're not even a church that teaches that you must be baptized to be saved. There are churches that teach things like that, although we do think that if you are saved that you should be baptized. But one application I thought of, if we're talking about entry points into the family of God, which is largely what they were addressing in Galatia, one application I thought of has to do with the way that we tell our conversion stories, our testimonies. I think the way that we talk about conversion can almost bewitch a person who grew up in the church. If that's you, do you ever feel like you need a more powerful, dramatic testimony? You know the ones I'm talking about. I was on drugs in a gutter, but then I came to Jesus. But if this passage is true, if It's the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, His power and His grace that does a work in causing you to believe the Gospel, and that's a miracle, then isn't that true for anyone who believes the Gospel? Not only for the former drug addict, but also for those raised in the church? Not only for those Damascus Road conversions, but even for the conversions of a child 
through the faithful witness of their parents? Isn't it true for those who can tell you the exact time and date that they prayed to receive Jesus in their heart, which by the way is not even spoken of in the Bible, as well as those who can't tell you an exact time, but know that right now they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior? Every person that hears and believes, regardless of their circumstance, is a testimony to God's grace and to God's power. You don't have to dress up your testimony to make it valid. God's Spirit and God's power are at work in everyone who sees their sin and sees that Jesus is the Savior of their sin. We are all sinners. It's one of the first things we need to understand if we are going to understand the Gospel. And if you want a right standing before a holy God as a sinner, then you need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. And the way He accomplished that salvation was through the cross. That's the only way to be saved. By hearing what I just said, receiving it through faith. This is the good news. You don't need anything else. You don't need circumcision. You don't need a Hollywood testimony. It's like the hymn says, My heart is leaning on the Word, the written Word of God, salvation in my Savior's name, salvation through His blood. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. I would add that it is enough also that He then sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit who lives and works in me. That's all the evidence that you need. You get in the family of God through hearing and believing the Gospel. That's the first truth we need if we are going to be dewitched this morning. The second is found in the middle two questions in verses 3-4. to four. Let me read them again. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain? The obvious answer to each of Paul's questions here is no. You don't finish the race in a way that is fundamentally different from the way that you begin the race. If your justification is by grace, then your sanctification will be by grace as well. If you were born again by the Spirit of God, then you will come to maturation by the Spirit of God as well. In other words, you get on in the family of God the way you got in to the family of God. You get on in the faith the way you got in. You begin in weakness, in utter dependence upon God, and you go on that way. Do you feel that? 
Do you feel your dependence upon God every day for your sanctification? He who began a good work in you, same language in Philippians 1 as in Galatians 3. He who began a good work in you, He will be faithful to carry it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. It's madness to think of it in any other way. Bewitchment. To illustrate this, I want to point to another passage in Paul's writings. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what Paul says. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. So that's the topic, the gospel. But notice the tense of the verbs he uses. That I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice the timeline of the relevance of the gospel in the life of a believer. The point he is making is that we begin with the gospel when we hear it and believe it. So it worked in us in the past, and yet it is also working in us in the present. We stand in the gospel, he says. Our current standing before God is based off of the grace of God. And our ongoing sanctification is a result of ongoing faith in the gospel. It's the gospel by which he says we are being saved. It's not talking about some notion of progressive salvation, but sanctification is part of the salvation that God is doing in our lives. That is, he concludes, if we hold fast all the way to the end. If we don't persevere in the gospel, then we have believed the gospel in vain. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 3 verse 4. The Spirit worked in them in the past in power. They were converted. And then that led to suffering, persecution, which happens to Christians. If they're going to ditch the gospel now, and go on to works of the law, then what Paul is saying is all of that faith and all of that suffering in the past, it was for naught. You've heard me say it before. I will say it again. True faith, by definition, perseveres. True faith, by definition, perseveres. Those who stopped believing, they never believed. But Paul doesn't think that that's the case with the Galatians. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he doesn't really think they had a false conversion. He just thinks they've got a bag over their head. And he wants to take it off. It's like he's quoting the song by Journey. Don't stop believing. Keep holding on. To the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, you don't ever graduate from the gospel. 
The gospel needs to be central to the curriculum of your discipleship until you matriculate to glory. It needs to be the main topic of the 100 level courses when you become a new believer. And it needs to become the main topic of the graduate level, PhD level courses as well. All the way to the very end. Some people treat the gospel as if it were only the door to get into the house of the church. But the gospel, it is the door, but it's so much more. It's also the foundation of the house. It's the frame that gives the house shape. It's the roof that gives the house protection. And it's even the decor that gives the house its beauty. Some of the stuff out there today on spiritual disciplines and discipleship provides great habits resources for Christians to follow. Bible reading practices, prayer exercises, instructions on fasting, how to meditate, things along those lines. But if you read a lot of this literature closely, there's something that is sorely missing from a lot of it. What is that? The grace of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The importance of the work of the Holy Spirit within your life. If your spiritual disciplines don't point you to the power for sanctification, which is the grace of God and the Spirit of God, then it's really nothing more than a work of the law. This last week, I read again the first half of J.I. Packer's classic work, Knowing God, which I would commend to you all. I think it's one of Mike Andrus's favorite books of all time. In Packer's book, he urges spiritual disciplines. Disciplines like meditation upon the Word of God. But for Packer, our work of getting to know God is never disconnected from God's work in the person of Jesus Christ. His spiritual direction is the type of direction that we need as we go about our daily lives as Christians at home and in the church. I want to read to you a quote that I've used before and that I continue to go back to. It's long and I'm not putting it up on the screen. It's like a no-no for preachers. But I think it is so important because it gives us a living example of a man who sees that the way that he gets on in the faith is the same way that he got in through marinating on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the quote. He's talking about the discipline of knowing God. And this is what he says. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. I'm graven on the palms of His hands. I'm never out of His mind. 
all of my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know Him because He first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when His eye is off me or His attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when His care falters. I'm not done. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort. Comfort that energizes, be it said, not innervates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that His love for me, get this, is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees, he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see and I am glad. And that He sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in that, in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, He wants me as His friend. He desires to be my friend and get this, He has given His Son to die for me in order to realize that purpose. That's it. That's how you think about making progress, getting on in the Christian faith. It's the same way that you got in. This is J.I. Packer. A giant of the faith. One who made more progress in knowing God than I will ever even be able to imagine in my life. And how did he get there? By leaving that simplistic gospel at the door and going on with more advanced courses? No. But by continuing to marinate on the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way to the end. When I falter in my faith, when you falter in your faith, I don't need more external signs or works to give me ballast. If I'm focused on what I'm doing, if you're focused on what you're doing, you are bewitched. And in your blindness, you will be led into a ditch Either the ditch of despair when you fail in your works or the ditch of pride when you succeed. The foundation that I need 
when I'm questioning my standing before God or in the family of God is not what I do. It is on what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Friends, let's get the bag off our head. Let's look at Jesus squarely in the face. The One that was proclaimed in the Gospel is publicly crucified. Let's fix our eyes firmly on Him every day and celebrate the fact that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and therefore to the glory of God alone. That's what we need to undo the spell of works-based righteousness. We get into the family through hearing and believing, and we get on in the faith the same way that we got in. Let us pray. Oh, how marvelous. How wonderful that my Savior died for me. I pray You would help us to celebrate this truth today and that we would never get over it. That it would captivate our thoughts that it would carry us in the storms that it would give us ballast foundation we pray that your spirit who began a work in us would continue to produce works that bring you glory we ask in Jesus name